Let me uh, go ahead and start us with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is uh, truth, and in which we take our refuge, Lord. We pray that you would instill in us a deeper reverence for appreciation for your holy scripture, that you would teach us, instruct us, that you would show us, make us wise for salvation through your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, I wrote in my inklings this week about the hymnal and praise of the hymnals, and I hope that worked out okay for you guys. I know some of you said, ah, oh, I might have to go to the large print. It's hard to hold the book, and I get it, and we want to continue to offer that, but we want to use the hymnal too. But um, anyway, I wrote in there about beauty, and uh, someone, not someone from this room, but someone from our congregation wrote, and it inspired them to write about um, dress in church and how people dress in church. Here's a question I want to start us with, and this is apropos to our, our study today. Does it matter how you dress in church? Does it matter how you dress in church? Why or why not? I'm open up a huge can of beans. We're not going to go for 45 minutes on this. But just for a couple of minutes, I'm, I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts on dress in church. Does it matter how you dress? Why or why not? Oh, both the winters have thoughts here. Let's see if they're the same. Go ahead. Go ahead. I know when I first started coming to church, yeah. it was a white shirt and a tie and a suit. When you first started going to church, white tie, or tie, white shirt, suit. Yeah. Yes, yes. And it was that way for... At this church or just church in general? Uh, well, even at this church. Yeah. Even at this church? <laughs> <laughs> okay, how about you, Leslie? What did you... It does and it doesn't to me. Okay. It to me, it does. Uh-huh. What other people wear to me is, you know, that, that's up to them. Okay, so for yourself. I, I try not to be judgmental on that, but to me, it, it does. I like to dress up. Sure. Because that's the way I was raised. Okay, fair enough. Good. Other thoughts? Yeah, Tara. I was raised to dress up, uh -huh. but I then discovered that it can be offensive to other people when they come into the church and everyone's dressed up and they may not be dressed up. Okay. So I actually, uh, in the last few years, have changed and started wearing jeans to church. Okay. Is, like, what? <laughs> but I wear jeans to church. I occasionally wear a sweatshirt, even sure. on Sunday, which would be not acceptable in the past. Sure. Okay. As long as you're clean and neat. Good. That, okay. Um, it, you should dress up, but on the same sense, you should try to make it comfortable for other people. Also. Yeah, being sensitive, wanting to be hospitable yeah. to others. Good. Okay, other thoughts? Yeah, Sandy. Colossians 3, 12, 13, 14, 15. Uh -huh. What to wear. What to wear. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. So Sandy points us to Colossians 3, which tells us what to wear. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And then further on, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Mm -hmm. Yep. Etc. That's very good. So when you, when you talk about clothing and what's the most important clothing, it's not about you know jeans, sweatshirts, tie, what have you. It's about kindness, compassion, humility. Good. I like that connection. Yeah, George. Um, I think sometimes uh, a new question or. A non-Christian visiting a church can be intimidated by mm -hmm. everybody being dressed up. Yeah, kind of what Tara was saying, right? Yeah. Uh, you go to Florida, uh, I mean, there were, there's no, no ties at all. Right. It's polo shirts and right. very comfortable. Shorts. 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 Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, okay. So, it's, and you, again, kind of what Tara was saying of wanting to be, um, Having that mindset of being hospitable, not to overwhelming people with how well-dressed we are, which isn't generally a problem, you know, that I have of just overwhelming people with how well-dressed I am. But, um, yeah, it, it can be a little bit intimidating. Any, any other thoughts? Yeah, Hans. Well, my father always wore a red tie. Oh, I did. Yeah. So that when the high season is, when the color is red, he would always... He's already ready. Yeah. He's already ready. Yeah. Um, but I come here to worship God, not to impress my neighbors. Oh, yeah. That's well put. Yeah. I uh, have always, when we were snowmobiling in the UP, and we would go to church on Sunday morning with our snowmobile suits. <laughs> right. And I always thought that was good. At least they took time to go to church. Sure. Yeah, exactly. So whether or not you're wearing 
Snowmobile suits or not, at least you're in the right place. Yes, Andy. When we lived in Milwaukee for a time, it's a city that's just filled with churches. Yeah. Catholic. And Our mother church, yeah. Trinity's mother church yeah. is in Milwaukee. But on yeah. Sunday, it was so funny to drive uh, anywhere and just green and yellow coming out. I mean, Packard. Oh, right. Packard uh, yeah. clothing everywhere. Else. Yeah, if, so if Gordon weren't church. wearing a red tie, he'd be wearing a green and yellow tie. Then. <laughs> but, yeah. right. Yeah, Carla. I thought it was interesting. A number of years ago, we had a young man in the congregation who was mentally challenged. Mm. And it would be hot and sweaty before we had air conditioning in the church. Mm. And, you know, everybody had their suit, suit jackets off. Right. Well, when he went to communion, that suit jacket was back on. Oh, I like that, yeah. He, he, out of that reverence, he wanted to make sure that he, he had that on. Good. Any last thoughts? Yeah, go ahead, Laura. I feel like there's also something to be said is less about how we dress in church, but why we dress yeah, that's good. Right. The, mo- the motivation does matter. And I think that's um, some people wishing to show their reverence for God want to dress up. And it, it's not about, it's not, not in a way to try and you know, show off or what have you, but because out of respect for, for the Lord. Right. Um, but others, meaning no um, disrespect to the Lord or to others, just, you know, dress how they feel more comfortable. And that can be fine too. Or, they, you know, they didn't grow up hearing, you know, you're supposed to dress a certain way. And so I think it can, it can go either way, for sure. And the, the question of motives is, is important. So, yeah, go ahead, Trey. Um, in Florida, where we used to go, it's a horse country, mm-hmm. and they have a horse church. Horse church. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Like Cowboy church. Cowboy church. But people, actually, <laughs> people actually drove their horses to church, and there was a big corral. Sure. And the pastor would preach. Yeah. yeah. Well, we just drive our horseless carriages now to church. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> horses are under the hood. It depends yeah. on where the you're at. The horses under the hood. That's right. I think. Yeah, I think a lot of it does depend on, on where you're at. And uh, so local culture and custom, as well as just kind of personal comfortability. But all of this, and especially Laura's comment about your, your motive and your heart, gets to what we're going to talk about in Leviticus 22, about offering acceptable sacrifices to God. And what makes something an acceptable sacrifice to him, whether it be the clothing that you wear to church, whether it be so many other things. So we'll get to that in the latter half of the chapter. But let's start in chapter 22, and I'll read verses 1 through 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons. Okay, this is directed to the priests here. Speak to Aaron and his sons, so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they don't profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, if any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I'm the Lord. None of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease or a discharge made of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with the dead or a man who's had an emission of semen, and whoever touches a swarming thing by which he may be made unclean or a person from whom he may take uncleanness, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things until or unless he has washed his body in water. When the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterward he may eat of the holy things, because they are his food. He shall not eat what dies of itself or is torn by beasts, and so make himself unclean by it. I'm the Lord. They shall therefore keep my charge, lest they bear sin for it, and die thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Okay, so here God addressing his priests and talking about the conditions, the circumstances under which they may and may not partake of the holy food. And bottom line for these first few verses, holy food requires holy people. Holy food requires holy people. So just the two kind of bullet points from these verses about who's able to participate in this holy food. One, be a member of the priesthood. And two, exist in a state of ritual purity. So these verses are kind of unpacking what's going to make them unclean or impure and thus incapable to partake of the holy food, okay? So there's a whole set of, you know, specific things that make the people unclean, and we've encountered a lot of these as we've gone throughout Leviticus. But the bottom line is God's telling them, okay, if my priests are going to participate and partake in this holy food, they need to be in this state of ritual purity. A couple of things to uh, point out in particular about this. 
One, that word unclean shows up again and again and again. And the uncleanness. So you're going to be unclean um, unless you've bathed your body in water. Okay? The bells ought to be going off in our ears with all this kind of language when we're thinking forward ahead to New Testament ways of, of speaking. But I wanted to ask about this in that same verse, verse 6. The person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening. Until the evening. It demarcates this time frame by which you're going to be unclean. Why do you suppose that was? And what do you think God is, is kind of teaching us through this unclean until the evening comes? Yeah, Carla. The evening begins the next day, doesn't it? That's right. That's right. We think of a new day starting what? In the morning, right? But going back to Genesis and the creation account, it says over and over, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So from that Jewish perspective, it's a new day. Well then, okay, we, we think about that. So we have a new day, and it's almost as though God is kind of clearing the ledger of the previous day, right? Do any of you ever feel that way when you wake up in the morning, where we kind of think of the new day? It's like a new day, it's new, a new chance, right? Yeah, and again, the Lamentations 3, which we know probably better from, from the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. And so there's that sense in which, you know, sun goes down and that there's now we're starting anew and that God himself even kind of instills that sort of mentality. Uh, but what he's pointing them toward and really trying to emphasize is that to be clean, you need to be clean and to be clean, you need to be washed. Oh, well, this sounds kind of familiar. So let's go to John 13, which really, I think, picks up and, and builds upon this teaching. Uh-oh. Can't keep him away from the word. Just suffer the little children to come to me. All right. John 13, familiar passage, right? Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter then said to him, quickly pivoting, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Right? And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Okay, so now, and then that last verse actually is significant here, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Of course, he's referring to Judas, right? Judas has made himself sinful and unclean, not because of any particular sin, but because of his lack of faith, right? Which has been issued forth in this betrayal of, of our Lord Jesus. So here, Jesus speaking in these same kind of Levitical terms, says, I need to wash you in order that you may be clean. And even here, I, uh, it's pointing forward to the gift of holy baptism, that now, having been washed through baptism, we are made clean. In the book of Hebrews, which, like we've said, is kind of this New Testament sister book to the book of Leviticus, it says, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. And the word sprinkled that the author of Hebrews uses there has important uh, background in the book of Leviticus also. As they would sprinkle the blood on the altar, now the, um, they're saying your hearts have been sprinkled clean with the blood of Christ. Your bodies have been washed with that water and the word, so making us holy and acceptable to God the Father. Okay? That's what makes us clean now as members of the royal priesthood as those who are the, the priesthood of the baptized. You with me so far? Okay, any questions or reflections on this, this uh, teaching about the holiness and washing being made clean?
Okay, so now I think there is a connection and ap application to be made, and it, and it has been made, when we think about us as New Testament priests and our participation in the holy food of the Lord's Supper. Okay, um, So this may be the most direct kind of application. So when we're talking about participation in holy food, as we said, for Leviticus, you had to be a member of the priesthood and exist in a state of ritual purity, those two things. So now, when we talk about participating in the holy food of the Lord's Supper, there's two things that the church, based on the scriptures, said this is what uh, is necessary to participate in this meal. One, to be baptized, and therefore to be made a member of the royal priesthood, the priesthood of the, of the baptized. And secondly, to hold repentant faith. Okay? So to uh, believe on the Lord Jesus, to have confessed our sins, and even in, when we have the confession in uh, the liturgy, it's significant that we have that at the beginning of the service, right? And we confess, I'm sinful and unclean. I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Then to receive that absolution, that forgiveness, so that who may, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may come to the holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, right? With hearts that believe, that are forgiven in Christ, as those who are baptized and who have been washed with that pure water, then we partake and participate in this holy meal. The holy, the holy food of the Lord's Supper. Um, some people will call this the teaching of closed communion, okay? which already kind of stacks the deck in a negative sort of way. Because it's like, well, it's all about closing off this meal. And that's not the point of it at all. The point is that we have this holy food, and so we want to, just like we see throughout the book of Leviticus, God cares about the holiness, not because, just because, okay, we're trying to exclude people, but for their own sake, right? For their own health, uh, that, that, that in fact it can have adverse effects. Certainly we see this in Leviticus. If you're in a state of uncleanness and you partake of the holy food, what happens to you? <laughs> right? Uh, we saw it with Nadab and Abihu. We saw it with Uzzah. Uh, we see it in, in many ways throughout the Old Testament. Fortunately, God doesn't usually just smite people on the spot, right? Um, but even in, in uh, Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians, he kind of alludes to this, that if you come without that kind of, of faith in Christ, that, it, um, that the supper works not to your blessing, but instead to your discipline. Not condemnation, some translations say that, but to your discipline. Okay? Um, what does that look like? How does that play itself out? We can't exactly say, but suffice it to say, in that way, it becomes not a positive thing, but a negative thing for you. And I've used the analogy before. It's just like if you take a medicine that hasn't been prescribed for you. The easiest one is, is Ritalin, right? You take Ritalin and you're someone with ADHD, what does it do to you? It calms you down, right? But if you take it and you don't have ADHD, it jacks you up. It has the opposite effect. Similarly, we come to the Lord's Supper in faith, believe in our Lord Jesus. We receive those gifts to our benefit. But if you come without that faith, if you're doing it just because, well, this is what I'm supposed to do, you know, like it's, it's Christmas time, I'm at church, everybody's going up there, I guess this is what happens. Um, or even something more, uh, you know, I mean, I've heard stories about people who specifically, you know, try to go in and infiltrate uh, a church and they're unbelievers and, oh, I'm going to take the Lord's Supper, I'll show them. Like, Dude, you're not showing anybody but yourself, right? It's, it's not hurting anyone else, but it's hurting, hurting you. Um, this is, goes back to very early days of the church. Um, the Didache, which I've referenced before. This is probably no later than the second century AD and maybe in the first century. It says, concerning the Eucharist, hold the Eucharist thus. It gives some more explanation. But then it says, let none eat or drink of your Eucharist except those who have been baptized in the Lord's name. For concerning this also did the Lord say, give not that which is holy to the dogs. Okay? So it applies that word from the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount and says, these pearls of God's gifts in the Lord's Supper are to be reserved for those who are baptized. It's a family meal. Baptism is what makes you part of the family, right? And thus, um, they would even have the, the practice where we still have this represented in the structure of our liturgy. The first part of, of the liturgy would be called the Liturgy of the Catechumens, or the Service of the Word. And after the prayers, after the prayer of the church, there's kind of a break there those who were not baptized would be dismissed, okay? And then they would continue with the, the liturgy of the sacrament, and only those who were baptized would be part of it. We don't do that so much now, but there's still that, that kind of break in the, the liturgy reflecting that. Yeah, go ahead. Um, 
if someone hadn't been baptized but believes in Jesus, then what? Okay, good question. So Esther asks, if somebody hasn't been baptized but believes in Jesus, then what? Then I would... Now, I'm going to conjecture a little bit here because I don't have a firm, firm word from the Lord. But I, I would trust, I mean, and I will also distinguish this from the question, if they haven't been baptized and they die believing in Jesus, will they be saved? Okay? I would put that slightly, slightly differently, right? I think that's a, a related but slightly different question. Um, I would say that somebody who comes believing who hasn't been baptized um, that, and, and receives the gifts, that it's not going to be to their discipline or their, or their condemnation. If they come with a, a genuine heart, and whether it was because they didn't know any better or just because they haven't yet had an opportunity to be baptized, then I, I think that, that, again, this is me conjecturing, but I think that that's good. Where it would be different is if somebody was like, I don't want to be baptized. I refuse to be baptized. Don't you lay that on me. I believe in Jesus. I don't need these man-made rites, blah, blah, blah. I heard this kind of talk and say, look, baptism is not man-made. Jesus tells us, uh, make disciples by baptizing. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, etc." Um, so that's a little bit different. But generally speaking, if, some, if a believer in Jesus, somebody who hasn't had a chance or what have you, hasn't been baptized yet, I, I think that's okay. But we would encourage them at the earliest opportunity to be baptized and in that way to be made a member of the family. Good. Yeah, Chip. So for another... Conundrum, Angus. Thank so, you. you know, with the uh, the first Lord's Supper, where the Lord gives it to the disciples, there's always the issue about Judas. Right. Right. So Jesus knows what Judas is going to do. Right. I've heard various opinions of whether Judas was or wasn't there at the at the at the Lord's Supper. Like someone we snuck out before. Right. Seems like it doesn't say that he is gone. Right. You know, but um, even if you say Judas wasn't there. It's hard to say the other disciples had faith in Jesus when they really didn't know what was going to happen. Jesus, right? I mean, they didn't, they, you know, you know, Peter, for instance, you know, seemed to know, but then denied Jesus. Right. Wouldn't say the strongest faith. Really not until Pentecost, so they really received the Holy Spirit. So were they really, I mean, they were as clueless as most people are going to the Eucharist of what is actually going on. Right. Even more clueless. Sure. You know, so as a meal of Thanksgiving, and it, 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 it just—it seems like that meal is, is that meal set aside differently, and our practice of that is a different thing than that first one. Well, so I would look at it like that. I mean, they don't fully know, right? They're not sitting there appreciating like, oh, Jesus is saying, "This is my body, this is my blood." Right. Well, they—they they don't necessarily have like a high, fulfilled theology of the Eucharist yet, right? So I would say all of that up to that point is like they're total, um, totally in in the dark. Because Jesus is instituting this meal. They're participating in it as a Passover meal, not as a Eucharist meal, right? And so he's in, uh, in, instituting the Eucharist. A new covenant. A, a new covenant, exactly. And then hen so henceforth it's, and, it's different. And they don't need to remember it. And they don't need to remember it. Right. Yeah, exactly. He's, yeah. he's right there in their midst. Go ahead, Matt. Uh, and I'm just saying, in terms of its effect, what difference would it make if they had no? Is their knowledge and reason and understanding really elemental here? We'll say more though. Well, I mean, if they have this supper, but you know, whether it's its effect and its purpose in God's plan, yeah, really doesn't depend on. It transcends. Yeah, right. exactly. It transcends your understanding, and your ability. I think that this is a, a, one of the primary ways why God gives us a meal, because it's what do you do? It's can I be any clearer? Take, eat, take, drink. Well, what do I do with this strange thing you put into my, right? Um, because God knowing the kind of creatures that we are, I'm going to make this as like, fundamental as possible. And we see this in Leviticus. How am I going to impart my holiness to you? It's by giving you this physical, tangible gift, right? It, this is how you come, touch, you, you touch me. And uh, this is part of why, like, I think it's a beautiful thing. Um, Carla alluded to this with this young man who had been part of the congregation who was mentally handicapped in, in some way. And so we wouldn't say, well, wait a second. Okay, this guy clearly couldn't understand all the intricacies of Lord's Supper theology like all the rest of us do perfectly. <laughs> um, and so he shouldn't, he shouldn't come. A similar argument is even made about baptism. Well, if somebody can't really understand, then they shouldn't be baptized. Listen, folks, I, you guys know this, too, from experience. Um, to take an uh, example, and, and I've had this, uh, too, folks um, with Down syndrome, for instance, can, ha can relationally 
I mean, they'll, they, well, their, their emotional quotient won't be quite right, right? They'll, they won't understand some boundaries and things like that. And yet they can be the, the sweetest, dearest, most loving and faithful, loyal people in the world. My point isn't to say one is, is better than the other, these people are more Christian or something like that. My point is, kind of what Matt's saying, sorry, I'm just kind of going on here, but it's God has given us these physical, tangible gifts, take, eat, take, drink, and, and continue to unpack the depths of what I am giving to you, right? Do you come, even the smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. Do you come with that faith? It says in the small catechism, Luther says, what makes you worthy? You believe in these words. This is my body given for you, right? That's what, that's what makes you worthy. Go ahead, Chip. So you got another one to throw that, in there? That we can't uh, really understand what's going on. There, right, right, right. But, um, you know, uh, and not to get too much into church politics, but like people have not gone, gone to the altar because they feel they don't have enough faith or they're struggling in their faith right. or they're experiencing doubt. Right. Or they don't go to the altar because they think someone else who's there is in sin and shouldn't and shouldn't be there. Right. Right. And so there's reasons people exclude themselves from the rail or sometimes are excluded. Sure. You, know, you are living in a unrepentant sin type of situation. Right. And I and I just so I get the knowledge, but the faith things that we put our own uh, structure on that area, our own uh, thresholds mm-hmm. with this, and I think that's, and I'm, I'm just wondering, like, as a pastor, you know, you're obviously are, are put in, you're, you're a steward of yes, the correct. Uh, yep. so how do you, how do you, how do you think about that? I mean, the way that, the way that I think about it is, once again, not faith, because there's different ways that we think about faith. One way that we think about faith is um, faith like a muscle. And it, you can have stronger or weaker faith, right? We talk this way, and it's an appropriate way to talk. I'm, I'm growing in faith. I'm becoming stronger in faith. I'm increasing my capacity to trust in the Lord. If we use that definition of faith, then to, to adjudicate who should or shouldn't be coming to the Lord's Supper, it becomes very sticky indeed. Because you're like, well, my faith is, is really weak. I'm a faith weakling. I'm not a, you know, a, a faith superstar, and so I'm not ready to go up there. But the, another way that we think about faith is not in this kind of spectrum of growth, but more as like an on-off switch, right? Where it's just you do or you don't. Your trust might be, as I alluded to a second ago, just that smoldering wick, right? The, the littlest bit of, of faith, you're clinging to it. And I'd go even further still to say that that is precisely the person who needs that faith fortified by the sacrament. It's the one who's like, Jesus, take the wheel. I am barely holding on here, right? We don't say to that person, well, you can come when you get your act together. Just like the doctor doesn't say, all right, all you sick people, get out of here, all right? Come back and talk to me when you're healthy. No, Jesus says it's not those who are well who need the physician, it's those who are sick. You feel sick? Good, you're in the right place. That's why this is the, the sacrament has been called the medicine of immortality, right? Come and receive that, that medicine. So, you know, and I mean, people ask all kinds of different questions about it. And, they, you know, I, yeah, it, we can go on. I don't want to get into all that, <laughs> that kind of stuff. All right, one more. Go ahead, Hans. This is an elder brother issue. Oh, all right. So the men's guild were reading and talking about the, the parable of the prodigal son yeah. and uh, the elder brother and the younger brother. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so the elder brothers are like, well, wait a second here. Who do we want to have at the feast? And uh, the... The father says, yo, this my son was dead and is alive again. He sees them coming up toward the altar and rejoices, right? Um, but if they come and they don't come with that, that faith, it does matter. Or, or they're not part of the, the family or they're you know, trying to sneak in to the feast. You think of Jesus' parable of the wedding feast too, right? <laughs> You're not clothed. We would con- that's historically been connected with baptism also. Well, wait a second. Why not? So, yeah, good. All right. Good, good talk, guys. All right. <laughs> let's, let's go on to uh, verses 10 through 16 as it kind of continues. And now it's going to branch out to the family uh, and to the, uh, this further community uh, around the priests. So verse 10, a lay person shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of the priest or hired servant shall eat of a holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it. And anyone born in his house may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter marries a layman, she shall not eat of the contribution of the holy things. But if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house, as in her her youth, she may eat of her father's food. 
yet no layperson shall eat of it. And if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, he shall add the fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them, who makes them holy. So now in this section, it's talking about how these, this holy thing, the holy food, it's for the priests, first and foremost, but also for the priest's family. And here, it, the, that holy meal is extending to the home as well. So number two on your, your handout, the holy things make the home a secondary sanctuary. Now, the law side of that is that now also the rest of the family is also held to um, those standards of being in ritual purity. And it gives some of those reasons why someone might not be admissible to the meal. But the bottom line is, uh, the, and the thing to, to read between the lines here, it's God saying, now these holy things make the home a secondary sanctuary. And I love this quote. I think I put it on your handout from uh, John Kleinig in his commentary on Leviticus. He says, the presence of the sacred food in the home of the priest, that there made its table an extension of the Lord's table. His house became a holy place. Through the holy things, the home of a priest became a holy place, a secondary sanctuary. It's a nice phrase for you. Secondary sanctuary. So that now those holy things sanctify what otherwise would have been a common place and make it into a holy place. This is a profound point, and for us as Christians, as New Testament believers, I think this is fundamentally the case. And the more that we can grasp this, the more we will see how, like we're doing our midweek service, how every moment's holy, every place, right? That it's, it's been made sacred. Now, this isn't necessarily saying, okay, so I need to take some of the elements from the Lord's Supper and, and take it home. Is that what you're saying, Pastor? No. Saying that now you are filled with the Holy Spirit, Right? Your body is a temple, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6. You all, the church, are a temple, 1 Corinthians 3. Now, when you go out bearing the Holy Spirit, your home is now a holy place. It's a place, a secondary sanctuary. Secondary sanctuary. Um, and I think this is picked up upon in, in the New Testament. We see this in the early church. With a well-known um, glimpse into the life of the early church in Acts chapter 2. There's one particular element of this I want to draw your attention to, though. Go to Acts 2. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42. Okay, it says this. This is after that first Pentecost. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this passage is often pointed to, and rightly so, as kind of establishing the pattern for the life of the church, not just in the, the early church, but still to this day. Those verse, verse 42, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the koinonia, to the breaking of bread, uh, probably an allusion to the Lord's Supper, and to the prayers. Um, but then it goes on to say in verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. This is what I wanted to especially draw your attention to, that here we see already this pattern uh, within the early church of two holy domains. First of all, them gathering together in the temple as God's public dwelling. Okay? They didn't have church buildings yet. They were still meeting in the temple, probably in the, in the temple courts, um, and uh, along some of the colonnades, wherever it might be, they, uh, that was the, the place of God's public dwelling where they would meet together as the fellowship of believers. But also it says in their homes, God's private dwelling, that secondary sanctuary, they were also gathering there. That was probably the place where they're breaking bread, where they were celebrating the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, in, in their homes. We know this, I mean, in the first several decades of the church, they continued to practice a house church. Not in the way that um, you might hear about that in our day and age, but it was like 
there would be uh, a wealthier member of, of the, uh, the nascent congregation who would have homes. And uh, archaeology has uncovered homes that were essentially used and repurposed for this purpose of being a, a sanctuary and place of worship. And there they would have the meal, but they would have the Eucharist in the context of a meal. It was called the agape feast. Together as brothers and sisters breaking bread. Maybe first they have some sourdough and then, I don't know, um, but they, then having the, the uh, unleavened bread of the Lord's Supper as well. And so we see that kind of, of pattern. I think that's so significant. But I want to ask, what are other ways that um, we do sanctify our home or see it as a holy domain? What are other things that just regular practices that, that we do, that we have, that kind of cultivate this sense of not just the church as God's public house, God's pub, um, but also the home as a sacred domain. What are some other ways that, that we kind of see it in that way? Yeah, Leslie. Our family devotions. Family devotions, right? And this is why I, I really, for our family, we have our family devotions after dinner, right? And we have them around the supper table in part because we've already wrangled the children and we've got them there for a minute. Let's try to just keep them there. But it's that extension again from the Lord's table to the supper table. So, yeah, family devotions. Other you thoughts? Take, you take your shoes off. Do I take my shoes off? That's what we do. We take our oh, when you come into the house. So, if you take your shoes off at recognizing, like uh, with Moses, right? Take off your feet. The place where you're standing is holy ground. Moses, don't get the carpet dirty. Right? <laughs> yeah, good. That's another way. Other, other thoughts? Yeah, Court? We pray for the meal. We pray for the meal, right? We say grace at meals, perhaps also at bedtime, right? Uh, making that, um, and um, some of you uh, uh, probably kneel beside your bedside. Maybe that's something that you learned from the time you were very young. And almost, you know, now you've got your own kneeler right there in the, in the home. Other things. Yeah, Laura. I know some people, uh, they anoint their homes, their doorways. Yes, the, the blessing of the home. And I had the opportunity to, to do that for several of you, and I'm still happy to do that. So the blessing of the home, identifying it, setting it aside, consecrating it, saying this is a holy place that the Lord dwells here. Very good. Other, yeah, Carl. In our home at Lent, uh, I have purple flowers. I have yeah. uh, crown of thorns. I have a sacred head. Crosses are all draped in purple. Yep. Uh, just to keep that sense. Keep that sense. I, I think that there's room in the, uh, the marketplace for liturgical interior designers. I, I think there's an opportunity here. But we, you know, we've tried to do similar things, right? Ann has, has sewn uh, like table runners of the different um, colors of the church here. Uh, I, I really like the ways that we can bring those churchly practices home, reflecting the sanctuary in our, our home sanctuaries. Oh, go ahead, you well, want to add something? We haven't done this year, but we have a cross with seven candle spaces. Right. And we have the, the seven purple candles. You light them all. Wednesday, yep. and then each week you dim one. You dim one more. Yeah, good. We have a, inside our front door, we have a collection of crosses mm -hmm. that we've picked up on travels or people have yeah. given to us. Yep. To know that we like that. Yes. Yeah, so having, having crosses in your home. Maybe you take that for granted, but that's, again, part of how we're sanctifying the home, recognizing, acknowledging this is a place that mm -hmm. Jesus dwells. Yeah. Some people have a mezuzah. Oh, right, the mezuzah. So... Uh, the, the mezuzah is the Hebrew word, which I don't recall what the, the Hebrew word means, but um, this was a little thing along your threshold um, that would hold the scroll, a Torah scroll. I think it, um, if I'm not mistaken, it would probably have the Shema on it, but it may have different verses. But you'd have that mezuzah on the, on the threshold. In fact, our home in Spokane, the previous owners were Jewish. They had re uh, uh, removed the mezuzah, but we could still see the outline on the, the threshold from where it had been. But there's a similar kind of Christian uh, analogous thing. Um, we have one um, at our house that someone had gifted to us of like a, having a little water basin, right? Um, you fill it with water, and ours is like a, a dove, like the Holy Spirit. And, you know, just like you might come into church, touch the water, make the sign of the cross. Remembering, we said today, you go out, you're baptized. Before you go, get beat up in the world, right? And then return to that place of refuge to, to the home. So, good. Any other um, ways? Yeah, Hans? Okay, you wear a flak. I haven't noticed you wearing a phylactery lately. Not, not recently. No. But that was that was that was that was a custom part of the idea. Yeah. You would go home. They right? would do it in your home. It would just strap the scriptures right. Strap to your the door. scripture right to you. Yep. Um, 
also, I mean, along kind of with the cross thing, but having scripture, you know, having, um, whether it be, you know, calligraphy, scripture, or knitted or crocheted scripture, right, um, at your house, all these different ways, surrounding yourself with the, with the word of God, too. So all of those are ways that we acknowledge the home also as a secondary sanctuary, as a holy domain. And um, this is, it, it is meet and well so to do, I might put it that way. Yeah, Esther. Having a special place for meeting the Lord. Yeah, having, having a prayer closet or a, a spot for your personal devotions. Yep, Set, setting aside whether or not it's a, a particular closet or it's just a seat. It's your lazy boy. That's your, that's your holy boy. Um, yeah, that's, that's another way as well. Good. I hope you guys are taking notes. You're getting some good ideas here. This is really good. Okay, well, let's continue through uh, Leviticus 22 in the, uh, the last big chunk of the, of the chapter because now it turns... Uh, and mine has the, the subheading, acceptable offerings. So beginning in verse 17, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel. Okay, so now this is not just the priests, it's to everybody. And say to them, when any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or freewill offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow, or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock, to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated, or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. You may present a bull or a lamb uh, that has a, a part too long or too short for a free will offering, but for a vow offering, it can't be accepted. Any animal that has had its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord. You shall not do it within your land. Neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animals gotten from a foreigner. Since there's a blemish in them, because of their mutilation, they will not be accepted for you. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on it shall be acceptable as a food offering to the Lord. But you shall not kill an ox or a sheep nor young in one day. And when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. Okay, so this is a long stretch talking about these acceptable sacrifices, personal sacrifices for all of God's people. But here's a, an interesting uh, point to make, that the sacrifice reflects the priest. The sacrifice reflects the priest, and that in more than one respect. It's a reflection of the priest and his character, but also the sacrifice in many ways mirrors the priest. So n notice this, and again, this, I'm not noticing this on myself, but the commentaries point this out. The disqualifying defects of the priests are the same as those of the sacrificial animals. So blindness is there in chapter 21, talking about the priests as well as for the animals. Lameness or an injured limb, an extended or a shortened leg for both a priest or for a sacrificial animal. Crippled foot or hand, likewise a maimed limb among the animals. Festering boil in both cases, not good. Your testicles are crushed or otherwise damaged. It's a disqualifying defect. And that's not even all of them. There's more of them, but it's almost point for point that there is this reflection. And why is that? Because the priest is, as is the sacrifice, is a, a representation, a representative. Okay? So the priest was meant to be a representative of the people. And so in as much as it was possible to have a good, uh, what would you say, a good example of the race, as it were, the human race. Um, and likewise with the animals, you want them to be without blemish as a sufficient representative. But there's also the sense in which your sacrifice reflects you, so that you want to offer sacrifices that are in keeping with your um, character of faith. Thus our opening conversation about how you dress in church. Well, on the one hand, it doesn't really matter uh, whether you, you dress up, dress down, what have you, but is it reflecting that character of faith, a spirit of faith? Because we would say, this is what makes an acceptable sacrifice, right? Think of Psalm 51. Psalm 51 hits this nail on the head. Let me just um, turn there real quick and feel free to go there as well. Um, 
Psalm 51 is, is a psalm that we've returned to again and again, and for good reason, because it very much has the sacrificial system in the book of Leviticus in the background. But psalm 51 uh, says this, that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. This is verse 17. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Okay? So an accept, a sacrifice is acceptable to the Lord now when it is made in faith. That broken spirit, broken and contrite heart. We offer spiritual sacrifices, not um, sacrifices from the, the herd or the flock, but the spiritual sacrifices that we offer are offered in that spirit of faith, the broken and contrite heart. See. Uh, Peter especially unpacks this. So turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter, similarly drawing, I think, in this Levitical background and, and vocabulary, uh, says this, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are what? Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay? So that now Jesus, as the once-for-all sacrifice, insofar as we are incorporated into him as part of those baptized people who've had our hearts washed, who've been made clean in Christ, now we offer these spiritual sacrifices. Prayer, praise, tithes and offerings are acts of obedience and good works. They are done in and through our Lord Jesus. See? This is also why when we pray, why it's important that we pray in the name of Jesus. Right? That's not just something that we, we do just because you've got to end it somehow and that's as good as anything. But we pray in Jesus and through the name of, of Jesus because it is only in and through him that we are able to offer sacrifices acceptable to the Father. And so if we were to try and pray to God in the, in the name of some other God, right, those are unacceptable sacrifices. Even as in the Old Testament, you try to offer your animal with a maimed leg, it's not going to be acceptable. Does that make sense? Likewise, uh, when we're trying to discern, well, what, what is that acceptable sacrifice that verse we've turned to so many times, Romans 12, I think is, is uh, instructive here. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, our whole selves, our whole lives, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That word, by testing, that by testing you may discern, is this idea that um, you're going to, it's going to be forged in the fires of everyday life. And again, this connects with um, the, the sermon today, because Luther would talk about how theologians, Christians as theologians, are made and forged through three things. Oratio, meditatio, and tentatio, those are Latin words. Oratio is prayer, that we, we start with, with prayer coming before the Lord. Meditatio is meditation on his word. But then Luther says you need tentatio, testing, temptations, and trials. Those are the things that really form and forge us as theologians, as followers of our Lord Jesus. Because through those fires, we learn to call on him, to lean on him, to flee to him over and over and over again. Thus that, that cycle of our, our lives in Christ. And so we don't always know, okay, Lord, what is acceptable and pleasing? What is the right sacrifice to offer to you in this moment? For instance, Lord, I'm considering different vocations or a change of vocation. What is good and acceptable and perfect, right? Well, there's not going to be one answer for that and for everyone. But we come before the Lord with prayerful hearts seeking to discern what's an acceptable sacrifice to you uh, so that we might honor you in it. Yeah, Leslie. I think this is where uh, Bible reading... Yeah, knowing the scripture. It's very important. Mm -hmm. and, you know, we know it. We get it into our minds and that. Yeah. 
Uh, something was said the other day, I said to Chip, I said, tell Grace, thank you for doing the counting every Sunday morning, because sure. up and downstairs is hard for me right now. Right. And he said, it somehow got hardwired into her <laughs> brain. And right. that's what we need to do, is hardwire the gospel, the word. You're telling me that we need to brainwash God's people? <laughs> no, we need to hardwire God's people. Well, honestly, yes. no, I mean, this yes. is, I, I, I'll never forget, first day of class with Dr. Joel Bierman, and he probably said something, he used to be uh, Carlos' pastor, he probably said something similar to you. He said, <laughs> just got right up in front of the class, he said, my goal is to brainwash each and every one of you, right? <laughs> and I, I, I was like, at first I was kind of put off by it, but then I realized what he was saying. He's like, look, yeah, you're going to be brainwashed in something. Better to be washed, indoctrinated. Again, that has negative connotations, but to be indoctrinated with the doctrine of our Lord. To be washed, have our brains, have our minds washed and renewed by his word so that it becomes hardwired, second nature as it were. That's the goal. That's the idea. All right, just one last, last thought on, on this section is that uh, in these last few verses from Leviticus, once again, God returns to say, as he does over and over again, verses 31 and following, so you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord, I, and you shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Three words of grace there. I'm the Lord who sanctifies you. Yes, I want you to honor me, to keep me as holy, to strive to follow uh, my commands and my rules, but ultimately, who's the one who makes us holy? He is. I'm the Lord who sanctifies you. Secondly, that reminder of that act of redemption that's already happened, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. These are not people who need to obey God in order to be redeemed. These are people who are redeemed and therefore seek to obey the Lord. Already they have been delivered, and now this is how they live in response. And then thirdly, that pronoun, small thing but so important, to be your God, right? Uh, as we say in the uh, Luther's explanation to the second article of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ. What does this mean? That I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, uh, born of the Virgin Mary, also true man, no, true God, and uh, true man is my Lord who has redeemed me. Why? That I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom. That he might be our Lord and our God. Words of grace that bracket obedience and put it in a proper kind of, of context. It's never about earning or meriting our place at the table or our, our place in, in the family of our Lord, but simply and solely by his grace received by the loving Father who sees each and every one of us prodigals wandering away and who goes, seeks us out, and brings us home. Next week, Leviticus 23, I love this chapter. It, uh, it's on holy time and the feasts of uh, God's people. So maybe if you get a chance, read that ahead of time. Come with your questions, and we'll dig into that next week. Thank you very much.